Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Hello everyone. I'm Matt Trumpets and you are listening to a very special Trumpets Time. Welcome to Trumpets Time, brought to you by Mist Apex and Speed of Sight, a motorsport charity providing track day and off-road driving experiences to blind and disabled people across the country. Please do go to www.speedofsight.org to support them. Today's episode is called Major Mal Misorganization. For our adventure today, I'm joined once again by Anil Parmar. Welcome back, Anil. Are you excited by this episode? I am. I feel like we've been talking about retro race reviews for years, so it's good that we're finally doing one. Yeah. Like yes, and it's very much thanks to your own prodding that this thing has happened. And I have to admit that personally, I'm a bit terrified by this undertaking. Oh, you should be. And there's only two of us now as well. So, you know, we can't just uh, go to Spanners to come up with a comment or anyone else. We've got to actually know what we're talking about. Yeah. And see, this is the root of my anxiety, because we're talking today about the 1999 European Grand Prix. And the fact of the matter is, for me, at least, it occurred in that great lacuna of Formula One between finding the old ESPN2 broadcasts in the mid 90s and then rediscovering it in the late oddies, I guess you would have to say on the Speed Channel. So I've done a lot of research, but I feel certain that I'm I'm going to be yelled at a lot on Twitter about literally every word out of my mouth. Well, I won't yell at you, so hopefully between the two of us, we'll have just enough knowledge to get us through this podcast. Yes, well, thank goodness there's Wikipedia, right? I would be lying if I said I didn't check Wiki about 10 times ahead of this, uh, ahead of this episode. <laughs> you and me both. Well, Anil, I also need to tell everybody at home that we are an independent podcast hosted by MissedApexPodcast.com. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. And at this point, I have to say, technically, we might still very well be first, as this race happened pretty much before there was such a thing as podcasting. And finally, this show is indeed safe for work. We are keeping it clean here so you can play this with the kids in the background or at work. So, Mr. Anil, I got to ask, 
why, oh, why, oh, why did you pick this of all the races to talk about? Right. So I started watching Formula One in 1998. So this is back when Pokemon was still like a new thing. This is when you had long hair. And um, I, I was hooked from the moment I started watching it. I was a massive Michael Schumacher fan. And I was used to seeing Ferrari versus McLaren, Schumacher versus Hakkinen. Now, as we'll discuss a little bit later on, when we expect, um, explain the context of this race, um, Schumacher didn't take part in this for a lot of this season because he'd broken his leg. But this was one of the first races I remember watching and thinking, oh, anything can happen in Formula One. Um, I actually remember watching this race with my mum with my mum, and I had my Game Boy. I, was, I remember playing Pokemon, and I actually stopped playing on my Game Boy because I was so enthralled by what was going on TV. Um, and if anyone is listening that knows me quite well, you know I never put down a games console. So clearly this game, sorry, clearly this race had you know quite a big impact on me. Yeah, but at least you could still uh, eat some uh, Nutella while you watched. I hadn't actually discovered Nutella at this point, Matt. So, no, really? You know, it, it was a long time until, yeah, it was like another 10 years. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like sometimes we just beat that topic into the ground over and over at your expense. But on the other hand, who, 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 who could blame us, really? And see, that's funny. See, I thought you picked it after, after watching the race. I, I had thought that you picked it because it literally is a walking advertisement for everything that Liberty is hoping to get out of this next set of regulations. Absolutely. And I know at the end, you want to talk about, you know, now versus then there are a lot of things from this race that I would love to see in future Formula One. Yes, uh, me too. I tell you what, I'm guessing maybe not everybody has seen this race. What do you think? I think it's one that people have maybe heard of and they remember certain key events, which I know we're very keen to discuss. But I think the audience could do with a reminder of who was actually driving in Formula 1 at the time. Because I have to admit, I, I actually forgot about a lot of these drivers. I thought, like you said, it would be helpful. There were 11 teams and 22 drivers. And here they are, along with their starting positions. First of off, first off in pole position, driving for Jordan Mugen Honda, was Heinz Harold Frensen, the hapless Heinz Harold Frensen. And then his teammate, Damon Hill, started in eighth. Tell me, Matt, do you remember much excitement about Frentzen back then? No. But again, this was, this is my large... His name has come up, uh, but this was in my large gap of Formula One, so I wouldn't, would not have heard. Uh, next up, we had McLaren Mercedes with good old Dave Coulthard. Did I pronounce that correctly? That's the way Martin Brundle said it on the broadcast. And Mika Hakkinen, second and third on the grid. Behind them got the Williams. It was Williams Supertech. So Williams won the title in 96, 97. And then they switched over to these Supertech engines, which were very underpowered. And it was really the beginning of their kind of downfall in Formula One. Uh, they had Ralph Schumacher. So the, how do I say this nicely? The lesser talented of the Schumacher brothers. And Alec Zanardi, who we now know very famously as, um, was an Olympian, the Paralympian. Um, was also a very, very quick driver. And then next up, we had the almost unknown these days team, Prost Peugeot, with Olivier Panis and Yarno Trulli. Yes, the same Yarno Trulli of the well-named Trulli train. And they were fourth and eighth on the grid. Right. And Olivier Panis, I believe, had actually won a Grand Prix at 
in 96. Uh, I should have researched this before the race, but he won in Monaco in a very chaotic wet race. He did not make a pit stop and basically inherited a, took quite an incredible win. Anyway, Benetton, Fisichella and Alex Wurtz. Fisichella at this point, Matt, a very young driver. And I remember from my time at Formula E, a few people there that were involved in Formula E at that period. This was the period where they believed he was going to be a world champion. Uh, unfortunately, his career didn't pay out like that. But at this point, Fisichella and the Benetton play life, he was expected to be a big player going forward. That's right. And he was P5 and his teammate, Alexander Wurtz, of whom we've heard much since then, uh, was P11. And next up, we had the Bar Supertech team. Again, the Supertech, not the uh, first choice of engines, with everybody's favorite, Jacques Villeneuve, and P8. And then the incredibly unknown Zonta and P17, which I thought was originally a supercar, but actually it turns out he was also a Formula One driver. Right. So I guess the big name here is Villeneuve. He won a title and then left Williams uh, to join BAR. This was their first season in the sport. Uh, a lot was made of the move. And well, we'll discuss how that goes for him later on. Ferrari, so Eddie Irvine qualifies P9, Matt. This is round 14 of the championship. He's fighting McHacken. He can only qualify P9. And next to him, Mika Salo. Do you even know who Mika Salo is? Um, I only know him from watching the race. <laughs> Right, okay. Very quick lowdown. He was a fairly decent driver who, after Schumacher broke his leg, Ferrari drafted in. Ferrari, when they hired Salo, did not expect to ever compete for the World Championship this year. Fate had other plans, but I don't think they really cared who they put in that second car, but that's just my opinion. Right. And then we had, um, in the Sauber Patronus, Pedro Denise, P13, and Jean Alesi, P16. And as, as fate would transpire... Yet again, Sauber would wind up playing an unwittingly important part in this race. Oh, absolutely. Um, Deniz was a driver I don't really recall. Alessi, on the other hand, was this driver that everyone thought he could go on to become a, a world champion, but it, it never panned out for him. And then we had, in the Stuart Ford, their last year on the grid, the Stuart Ford, because they were, I think, ultimately sold to Jaguar, we had everybody's favorite commentator, Johnny Herbert, and P14, and then, oh, the long-lived, indeed, Rubens Barrichello in P15. Right. It, it seems strange seeing Herbert actually race. I kind of forgot he was around, but he, he ends up playing a very important part in, in this Grand Prix. Indeed, um, he does. And and honestly, at a, at, at a certain point, I thought perhaps you were trolling me when we got to the end of the race, <laughs> because everybody always loves to bang on his commentating. Right. And then we had Minardi who I think was everybody's favorite underdog team. Luca Badoa, I think he qualified oh, 19th, I've got down there. 19th, and Mark yeah. Genet, his his teammate. Um, Luca Badoa, if you're a listener, you may remember him because he was he actually replaced Felipe Massa when Massa had that horrific uh, accident in 2009. But he is another very important character in this race. I feel like we're saying this all the time, Matt, but all these names we're mentioning all play a key part. Yes, and then last and certainly least, we come to the Arrows team. Oh, great. Okay, so first of all, they've got at the back of the grid, Pedro De La Rosa, who went on to become part of McLaren. Yes. And I think he actually drove for HRT uh, when they joined Formula 1 2010. And in the other drive, in the other seat, they've got um, Takagi, <laughs> who, unfortunately, when he spins out and crashes, Mike Brundle just seems to go, yeah, you know, that's just what he does, so... Oh, it, 
not a very strong lineup, Matt. No, not at all. And 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 they were they were not um, sparing in their criticism during the race of Takagi and his effort, nor uh, of the team in general. And speaking of teams, because nothing is really new in F one, I think it's also kind of interesting to see what happened to some of the names that are no longer in the grid. For example, if we take Benetton for say, uh, they became Renault, then they became Lotus, and then they became Renault again. Right, so they won two titles with Benetton. They then won two titles with Renault. So there's clearly a lot of history there. They struggled somewhat in their Lotus years, but who knows what they could achieve in current Formula 1 as Renault. Um, And then, of course, we've got Stewart, who then became Jaguar as one of the during the manufacturer era of Formula One, where teams were spending so much money, uh, Jaguar did absolutely terribly. But they then became Red Bull, led by a certain Mr. Christian Horner. Indeed, they did. And right behind them on the grid, we had Barr, which became Honda, which became Braun, which became Mercedes. And uh, I, I, I need to ask you, because I wasn't watching all of the races back then, how exactly were they doing back then? Right, so British-American racing arrived with a lot of hype. They seemed to know how to market themselves as well. Um, They kept saying about how they had so much racing heritage, which was obviously ridiculous because this was their first season. But they had Mr. Jacques Villeneuve. And I remember, Matt, every race this year, Villeneuve retired. The the car just kept breaking down. Um, His first finish actually came in Spa, which I think was round 12 of the championship. So this was an incredibly unreliable car. It really took them until the 2004 season with Jensen Button where they actually started to get podiums and regular points. Uh, They were a bit of a joke. Oh, dear. Well, they certainly came a long way once they got bought out with someone with virtually uh, endless deep pockets. Um, We had Minardi, which, true to their their underdog nature, became Toro Rosso in 2005. Yeah, the underdog spirit in that team is well and truly still alive. And... I think they were very much a fan's favorite team. They were the ones that they tried really hard. They never expected to ever really get a point or finish. They just wanted to be on the grid. And I think a lot of fans just wanted them to be there. Yeah. and But but it's interesting that they, they have maintained their ability to, I guess, punch above their weight, which seemed to characterize them even back then. Absolutely. And we, and we should keep in mind a number of great drivers drove for that Minardi. Fernando Alonso... Mark Webber in the early 2000s, and they went on to achieve um, some good things. But uh, another team I, I really remember that was Jordan, that bright yellow car. I think it was with Benson and Hedges uh, branding, because, of course, cigarette sponsors were allowed back then. Yes. Um, and they had a great se- season uh, in this, this year. They became Spiker, very short-lived, and, but they, they then became a Force India, who are still on the grid today, and I think uh, perhaps Giant Killer is the wrong word because they don't exactly win races, but I guess you could call them the midfield killers. Because on very small budgets, they occasionally get podiums. So, um, yeah, a fan favorite this year for certain. Yeah, and and again, just uh, a certain efficiency with uh, the resources that they had. And Prost, a name that we all know from the uh, duels with Ayrton Senna, actually went on and started a French Formula One team. Um, and they went, well bankrupt in 2002 and that was the end of that right and this was the era where we did see former world champions own teams i mean we mentioned earlier we had stewart and Prost is just another example of that they i I don't remember much of Prost and how they performed um i can't really recall anything notable they ever achieved 
Uh, but one team, one team I always noticed though was Arrows because they almost won the Hungarian Grand Prix '96 with Damon Hill. I remember Spanners often talked about how heartbreaking that was when Hill retired a few laps. Oh, um, had a mechanical problem a few laps from the end. Um, but actually, Dietrich Mateschitz, I hope I pronounced that right, before he actually bought Toro Rosso and Red Bull, he did look at Arrows. Arrows famously uh, put, uh, built their car underweight pre-season in that final year um, to attract sponsors. Uh, they ran about 20 or 30 kilos underweight and low fuel lap times in testing. Um, and people thought, oh, wow, they could get a podium. But no, they <laughs> they definitely did not. And as you say, they ended up being bankrupt as well. Yes, I'm being corrected by the chat room. Uh, apparently, I implied that Pro started the team. I uh, did not mean to imply that. He bought Leger and ran it uh, for himself. But it was, uh, I believe, the last, uh, when it went bankrupt, it was the only French team uh, when it went yep. out of business. And it was officially Prost F1. Yes, you're also right about that chat room. I hope you're happy with yourselves now. You've corrected uh, the ostensible host. And then... Um, and but it was interesting that for them being out of business, Super Aguri still ran their chassis in two thousand six. Yeah, Super Aguri were a bit of a one off. I kind of forget. I kind of forget that they ever existed. Um, but the fans seemed to love them, and so did yeah, Kumasato was their driver for a season or so. Um, but yeah, it, it was strange that I guess for a team that didn't have that much money to come in during the manufacturer era, the best option was to look at a defunct team. And just use the chassis, even if you're off the pace, at least you're in the world of Formula One. Yeah, well, and it's not the first time we've seen the um, low-end budget teams uh, pulling maneuvers like this. Although you'd be you'd be pretty hard-pressed to buy an old chassis now. The regulations have changed so much and so recently. All right, so um, before, before we barge into the race itself, uh, real quick, let's recap the season and the world championship order. At the top, we had McLaren with 108 in the constructors. Right, we've got a Ferrari close behind, uh, 102 points. And for the first time, for a long time, it looked like we had two cars equal on pace at the top of the standings. Yes, and then way, way back, we had Jordan with just 57 points. And worth pointing out, uh, because the midfield has always been thus. Uh, the midfield has always been the midfield. And uh, in this instance, uh, even though Jordan was capable of tilting at the top, um, as we saw in the race, uh, they weren't really over a whole season capable of competing on the same plane. And likewise, with the Drivers' Championship, we had, excitingly enough, a tie with three races left. Mika Hakkinen and Eddie Irvine on 60 points. We had Heinz Howard Frentzen in the beautiful Jordan on 50. And then everybody's favorite Chen, David Coulthard, on 48 points. And speaking of scoring, it was a bit different back then. So why don't you take us real quick through how the scoring worked and how the qualifying worked. Right, okay. So I'll keep it short and simple. Only the top six got given points for the race. So there was none of this, you know, half the grid get a point. The winner got 10, six for second place, only four for third, and then three to one and what this meant was at the end of the season it was quite common to see teams matt only have one or two points um i, I think bar finished this season with zero um and very often you know you mentioned that hacklin and irvine were tied for 60 points this is round 14 of the championship matt so they to only have 60 points out of a possible 140 shows how wild the season was in terms of qualifying things were very different you had a one hour shootout so 12 laps 
um, which basically yeah. meant drivers would do an outlap, a fast lap, and an in-lap, and they, would, they could repeat that process four times over the course of 60 minutes. Um, what this normally meant was drivers would do kind of banker laps early in the session. The slower teams would rubber the track in, and then you got your fast cars, your your, your Mercedes, McLaren Mercedes, your uh, Ferraris, and in this case, Jordan head out right at the end. Um, the other thing we did have was the 107% rule, which we have in place now, but all the cars comfortably make it. Back then, there were still occasions where teams would fall outside of that. Yeah, there were. And the interesting thing about qualifying is we were well on our way towards feeling out the current uh, elimination process we have. And in fact, that what you mentioned was it the first 30 minutes, no one would go do anything because they were waiting for the other team to go out and rubber in the track eventually led to the demise and change of this format. So um, how did it come to be then, for the last bit of our grid walk, I guess, for lack of a better word, how did it come to be that in, in, in the era that I always associate with Ferrari dominating everything, how did it come to be that we had, A, what happened to Michael Schumacher, and B, what happened to the dominance? It seems to have just disappeared. Right. So I think the important thing to keep in mind is at this point, Schumacher had only won two of his seven world titles. He moved to Ferrari in an area where they weren't competitive to help them win again. Um, he lost out to Villeneuve in 97, albeit Villeneuve in a better Williams. 98, there was a big aerodynamic rule change, Matt, and that's what allowed McLaren to launch to the front. They even stole Adrian Newey off Williams, and they were the team to beat. It wasn't Ferrari. I guess a bit like now, actually, where you've got Hamilton in your Mercedes and Vettel in the Ferrari and it's almost surprising to see Ferrari you know, challenge. Um, it was all about Hakkinen. However, Michael Schumacher broke his leg at Silverstone. And I think a lot of people, including myself, wrote the championship off. You know, oh, it's Hakkinen's. It's going to walk away. It'll be a terrible title. However, there was kind of this sequence of unbelievable race results that somehow gave Eddie Irvine a chance at the title. Um, the race before this race was Monza. Um Ferrari's home race, but Ferrari were very, very slow all weekend. And it looked like Hakkinen was going to dominate and really stake his claim on the title until he spun out at the chicane. And you might remember this. He actually, the crowd went mental, of course. They were cheering that Hakkinen right. had blown under pressure. And it was just a mistake. And he ran off into the kind of the forest and he just started crying because, you know, the pressure had clearly got to him because everyone was saying to him, or you've got this title in the bag. And he wasn't used to that kind of pressure. And you know, he blew it. So going into this race, um, and Frentzen won it as well, actually. Frentzen won that race, which gave him an outside shot. So we kind of had this awkward season where everyone thought it was going to be terrible. But somehow the races kept on delivering. And incredibly, Irvine went into this race equal on points with Hakkinen. And let's keep in mind, the moment Schumacher broke his leg, Ferrari did not develop this car. No one, including Irvine, expected a fight for the title. And yet McLaren um, showed up and and were obviously getting the job done. At this point, I think it's time to move on to where the race was won and lost. And I have no bumper for that because it's a trumpet's time. But I'm going to tell you right now that in my opinion, this is an impossibility. And I'm going to try and get through this as quickly as possible. In 60 seconds. All right. So here's here's my 60 second accounting of the race for the for those of you 
for the nobody listening to this. I'm, this is for the people who aren't on the live stream, because clearly pretty much everyone here has not only seen this race, but memorized it just, just, to, just to be able to give us a fair amount of grief when we were wrong, which we completely and totally deserve. Don't get me wrong. But here's my best accounting in 60 seconds or less of the entire race. Are you ready? Oh, this is going to be great. Okay, good luck. <laughs> good oh, luck, yeah. Matt. Yeah, this is going to be horrible. All right. So I almost feel like it's like, you know, the Saturday Night Life character, Stefan, you know, if you want a race that has, that's kind of what I feel like I'm about to do here. All right. So here we go. Grid out of order. Jump start. Abandon start. Restart. Crash. Safety car. That's the first minute. Carrying on. Irvine point. already off. Out of the race. Physical off. Irvine P4. Rain. Busy off again. Hakkinen wets. Dry. Ferrari pits. Irvine by Hakkinen. Hakkinen slicks. Other Schumacher pits. That would be Ralph. Hackenen lap, Frenson pits, Frenson out of the race, Coulthard leads, Herbert points, rain, Hackenen lapped, Sallow off, Herbert pits, a lazy out, lots of rain, Coulthard out of the race, Irvine points, Irvine pits, Fisichella off, Herbert P2, dry line, other Schumacher pits, Takagi into the barrier, surprising no one, Sallow out, Irvine P7, Herbert pits, P3, Fisichella spins out of the race, other Schumacher. Right rear puncture off. Hakkinen unlaps, but our engine goes kaboom. Out of the race. Hakkinen chasing Irvine. Zonto off. Surprise. Villeneuve out. Irvine P6. Hakkinen chasing Irvine. Mistake. Hakkinen points. Hakkinen P5. Checkers. Herbert wins. Wow. Yeah? Not bad? That, that was really impressive. Thank um, you. If every Formula One race was like that nowadays, um, it would be the most popular sport on the planet. And I can't wait to discuss all that with you because so much happens. So if anyone's listening to this doubting whether they should watch the podcast or sorry, watch the race, that's your reason why. Yeah. Oh, oh go watch it. And, and just, just for a slightly different perspective, if we look at it differently, we had four leading cars out of the race. We had two more in the points out of the race. We had Minardi holding off Ferrari for the last point. And arguably, that was the nail in the coffin for the World Drivers' Championship. The only win for Stewart. The last win for Johnny Herbert. And the very last podium ever for Prost F1. And that was just in the last 25 laps. I see that Spanners has come back to say hello. Hello there, Spanners. Welcome back. Oh, it was a little bit earlier than I was expecting you to bring me in. I was enjoying your retro chat. Quite a good idea. I'll accept that, Matt, now. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I only had to def- defend it vociferously to you over WhatsApp for you even begin to entertain the notion of letting us do this. Glad, glad that we were able to convince you. But the reason I wanted to drop into you guys was to tell people how they can come and hang out with us. Unfortunately, by us... I just mean me because you are very, very far away, Matt. You're in America and it would cost us several hundred pounds to fly you over. But the rest of us, me, Bradley Philpot, Gene Z, uh, Catman and Summers are going to be doing a live recording in London where we're all going to do a live podcast. We'll have a live quiz and we're inviting you to come along. We've had a reasonably strong response. So I need to find out from you guys if you're thinking of coming along why don't you email me at spannersready at gmail.com and just say you're interested in coming to the live event all this does is means that i will add you to a mailing list and i will get an idea in my head about the sort of numbers of people to expect um also june 30th we're karting at daytona milton Keynes. now more than half the slots have gone already and last time out we um 
we did sell out and we had a big waiting list. So I'm very, very keen for you guys to get in touch with me, SpanishReady at gmail.com and say to me, put me on the carting list so I can go to Daytona and say, right, we have this many people. Let's go for it. Let's make that booking. Get in touch with me at SpanishReady at gmail.com to come carting on the 30th of June. Matt, I'm going to leave you alone to talk about the past and stuff. Yes, well, you know, uh, it's certainly much more entertaining than the present. Have a good show, guys. All right, thanks much. And yes, for those of you in the chat room, you can still buy the coffee mugs and all the other merch that we have for sale and feel free. It's not like we're making money off of it, but we know how much you love us. All right, Anil, welcome back. So, my goodness, there was so much that happened in the race. Let's just pick a few things and talk about it. And for me, the start of the race, in particular, the Denise crash, has to be at the top of the list. I mean, and for the again, for those who didn't see it, essentially what happened was uh, you had, was it one of the Jordan slowing and you had Alexander Wirtz trying to get around him and he just pegged the back of the Sauber that Denise was driving. And then his rear wheel hit the front wheel and he flipped over, went into the grass and in the process of that happening, tore the entire roll hoop off the chassis and it really looked like his entire head was just buried underground when it came to a rest and also a wheel came off too which is something you never see these days right yeah this was um this was pretty terrifying because it's a very low speed incident it's not like they're doing it's not like they're halfway down the straight when this happens it's through a corner um murray walker's commentary at the beginning gets me every time i have to say um he sees a car flip and he yells out bang as if someone's been shot. So that gets me any time. But as you say, the actual incident itself is quite scary. Um, from my understanding, it had rained. It rained all weekend, actually, on and off. And the grass was quite wet. So the roll hoop bar appears to have kind of dug into the dug into the car. Sorry, dug into the ground. Normally, the car would flip. But in this case, he just gets stuck with his head under. It looks It looks very bad. Brundle says, oh, that's definitely a red flag. They decide to bring up the safety car. And this is a point you want to talk about later on, Matt, when it comes to um, were things a bit more lax than they were now. I think certainly nowadays that would be a red flag. Um, the medical cars there are immediately, and they have to spend a lot of time actually lifting the car up and turning him over. I've got to say, if if that happened now, um, you know, that would be... I would expect to see that on every motorsports publication as one of the biggest accidents. It is very similar to the Fernando Alonso one we had at Australia a couple of years ago. But if you remember, Alonso crawled out of that car. You know, in this incident, Denise is just he's trapped upside down. Yeah. And you you don't really know. As the race was going on, I was waiting to hear a message like, Oh, and Denise is fine, he's done an interview. This there's, there's a lot of uncertainty about his condition. Yeah, there is. And and again, you know, what stuck with what sticks with you is Walker's commentary. What sticks with me is Herbert's is and he just basically says, Oh, the roll hoop looks like it might have been torn off. Oh, well, that's not supposed to happen. I imagine Charlie Whiting will be having a look at that. Can you imagine that being the reaction if it happened today? That would not be the reaction at all. You know, but it, it but it just again, it was a different era. It was a different time. And and we'll get to we'll talk about more about that later. But it was crucial because it kept a lot. It kept the field together for the early part of the race. It changed the timing of the pit stops. And critically for me, um, you know, uh, because of the way the weather would play into it as well, 
it, all of that, none of that would have happened the same way if the race, had, if it had just been an off into the barriers or something like that. But it was, it was almost a six lap safety car. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if there was plenty of runoff as there is nowadays, actually the incident that Hill was dodging wouldn't have even happened because that car would have just kind of skipped turns two and three. Oh, one thing I do want to mention that we've missed out actually is the jump start, which I, I've never seen a jump start like this. So for anyone listening who's not familiar, the cars are run up on the grid, the five lights come on, and they don't go off. And Frentzen go Frentzen goes for it, as do the uh, McLarens. Now, cars have jumped the start in the past. I recall Fernando Alonso doing it a few years back, and naturally that that tends to mean a drive through penalty map. Yeah. But in this case, the lights never go off. They just stay on. So I, I think it must have been a, an electronic problem because Brundle was making the point that they're on for far too long. And I just wonder, had the lights gone off as Frentzen had jumped the start and, you know, as a third of the grid jumped the start because it was all the contenders at the front and the race had gone on, it would have been penalties for all of them. So I guess... They're thanking their stars. Well, that, um, I, I, I actually have a counter to that. And, and not that I sat down with a stopwatch. But if you go into the regulations, you will find that, that those lights are on for a minimum to a maximum period of time. And I suspect that so, that that the teams that were on it, you, you either had either someone with a stopwatch or someone with a timer. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And when it got, when you were about, when you were that close, they just said go because they knew at that point you were going to hit the maximum time on the lights. But the reality was is that Janae and um, I can't remember, they lined up out of order. So they actually called it, uh, they called it an abandoned stop. They put the orange lights on and they made them go around again and line up. Right, okay, yep. Good point about the cars not being in the right order. Uh, I've never seen an incident like this at the start of a Grand Prix. 
Mm. I've seen cars line up out of order and they just do another lap. Yeah. But the idea that the, the, the cars on the first two rows of the grid jump the start is extraordinary. And it just added to this sense of, you know, real excitement and drama before the race has started that this happens. And then, of course, we're going to the Deniz incident. Yeah. So, you know, very exciting. Yeah, and, and incredibly unpredictable. And it, and you had mentioned the um, safety car versus the red flag. Well, I'll tell you, if you look near the end of the race, and I can't remember who it is, uh, someone spins it. I, I, I think it was, um, oh, man, it was Zanardi, perhaps, even, uh, trying to get past two back markers at once to make his way through the field, spins it, stalls it in the in the final turn, and there are marshals out on track, and they're out on track and they're like, well, I'm surprised we don't even see a yellow flag yet. And you'd think that they they call a safety car because they're marshals on the track. But no, in fact, they stay out on track and they manage to get the car in gear and get it out of the corner before the race makes its way back around. Now, I've heard in the past from people who are marshals and as much as we hear a lot of times sort of the drivers complaining about, well, you know, the sanitization, for lack of a better word. Well, the marshals are the same way. They they would very much pride themselves on knowing if they had the time to get onto the track and off of the track without interrupting the race. And a lot of times that call would be down to whoever was running that particular corner. And you would never see that. The moment that car stalled, you would at a minimum you'd see double waved yellows for that kind of an incident and and likely a safety car. Right. I, I felt a bit uncomfortable watching this because Brundle was very clearly upset that they're not taking more caution. But I don't know if you noticed, Matt, when the tractor comes out to remove that car in the incident you mentioned, Brundle says the words, oh, great. And now there's a moving tractor on the circuit, which is very fitting because he he had an incident uh, at Suzuka, which yes. was basically identical to what happened to Jules Bianchi. Um and I, I just found it fascinating that they were so lax about that because he's clearly so angry. As a driver, he's saying there should not be a vehicle on the exit of a corner. Yes. Um, it's quite astonishing. Uh, I want to talk about the first stint, Matt. Okay. Can I, can I start talking about the, the top four? The quicker we go, the better, because we're about 13 minutes behind my planned schedule. Right, okay. So we've got Frentzen, then for Mika, Coulthard, and Ralph. And we've got Ralph Schumacher like hanging on to the back of these McLarens, which is quite amazing because they weren't a... They weren't doing particularly well at that time, Williams. Frentzen's leading the pack, but he's holding them together. Um, and that's when we start to just... Oh, and Irvine moves up to P6 because he overtakes Deniz. Right. Um, he then eventually manages to fight his way past Fisichella. Um, and this is a quite a good scrap between them because it's not a very easy track to overtake on. Fisichella is trying to make a name for himself. Maybe he feels, oh, I need to let Ferrari know I want that seat. He's driving very aggressively. Um, eventually... Fisichella makes a mistake, Irvine goes past him. But Matt, that's when it starts to rain on the track. Yeah, it, 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 and the rain, it wasn't a kind of rain. It was a kind of, it was a beautiful kind of rain, the kind of rain you get in spa where one part of the circuit is soaked and the other part is dry. So you really, it's really a tough, tough call as to what you want to do. And it was interesting because at the start, Hakkinen had gotten Coulthard and taken second. But that Ron Dennis at McLaren decided that he was going to make the winning move and bring Hakkinen in out of the lead group and stick him on on the wets. Now, I had wanted to talk about Hakkinen because it, they, they made it fairly clear in the race that it was um, that it was uh, Ron Dennis who, who made this call. 
But I'm not so sure, based on what happened after that, that Hakkinen necessarily agreed with the call. Right. So my memories of Schumacher-Hakkinen fights were that as soon as it rained, Schumacher was comfortably the better driver of the pair. And I just don't think he was ever particularly good in those conditions. Now, as soon as the rain hits the track, who's the fastest driver out of the top four? It's Ralph Schumacher. Right. And he gets his way past Coulthard, and it's a brilliant move. Um, he gets him out kind of into the chicane that leads on to the final corner, which is a long, long right-hander. He ends up having so much more confidence. And I think at that point, it becomes apparent to McLaren that actually their drivers aren't happy in these conditions, but they're now vulnerable to the threat from behind. Um, Frenson looks pretty comfortable. They box Hakkinen, who is no- struggles... He was struggling in those conditions, and I think they knew that Ralph was going to fight his way past. They then boxed Mika for a set of wet tires. You got James Allen in the in the pit lane going, "Oh, it's a Ron Dennis inspired move. This could win him the race, and not just the race, Matt. It could win him the title." But the rain isn't—it's not heavy enough for wets, and it's not—they don't have inters. Uh, was what I realised as well. They have wets and grooved slicks, and. Some some of the drivers seem very happy to stay on those slick tires. We should remember this is in the era of refueling, where ideally you you don't make a pit stop until you're basically out of fuel, because that at that point is where the car is the fastest. So you, you hold off until you, you you really have to make a pit stop. Yeah, um, and, and that's when you dive into the. That's when you make your. That's when you make your first or second stop. And that's an excellent point because a lot of the time that they calculated you would make would be made in those last couple of laps when the car was basically almost dry so stopping outside of your uh pre-planned strategy is always going to have a negative impact on you and just for comparison because i know you asked me this question earlier i did get the stopwatch out and did my best to estimate a pit delta and if you had a standard stop of around seven or eight seconds which is what it was with the refueling you were looking at 36 to 40 seconds to get through the pit lane so uh, unlike Unlike now, where the delta tends to rock mostly between 20 and 22 seconds, uh, unlike now, you it was really worth, even if you were losing a second a lap, if the rain wasn't going to be persistent, a lot of times you would lose less time by staying out and, and sliding around the track than you would coming through not only for a set of wets, but remind yourself you're going to have to come back in for slicks in order to not just get slaughtered out there because the wets were not good at all once the dry line appeared. Absolutely. And what we saw from Hakkinen was he put the wet ties on and it was whenever the camera showed the final sector mat, it looked like it was soaked. Yeah. But then as soon as I got around that final corner it looked dry. It was really, yeah. it was strange weather. You know, Murray Walker's having the time of his life. He's like, oh, it's raining so heavy. But then a second later, you see the, the dry part of the circuit. And he's like, oh, yeah, I think Hacken has made a bit of a boo-boo here. But another team that reacted to that, as a Ferrari fan at the time, I remember, yeah. I actually remember <laughs> screaming at the this television. This could not have been, yeah, this, this must know, have been your dark moment in the race. Well, <laughs> that pit well, stop. So, exactly. So first of all, I'm thinking, oh, McLaren have messed it up. Yes, go Eddie, go Eddie. Ferrari bring Mick Osalo in for his pit stop. And it's going on for a long time, Matt. I'm talking, I think it was, he, he was stationary for 38 seconds. Yes, it um, was. They didn't have tyres ready for him. They couldn't get the fuel. Anyway, I remember as a kid thinking, the same thing won't happen to Eddie Irvine. It can't happen to Eddie Irvine. Irvine comes into the pits, Mick is way down. This could be the pit stop that... Get, 
jumps him ahead of Mika after his terrible qualifying. One tire on, two tire on, three tire on. Uh oh. Yeah. And where's the, the right most bizarre rear? interaction I've ever seen <laughs> in, a, in a pit stop? Is, you had it. No, I thought you had it. What? Well, yeah, eventually. No eventually. To anyone listening who's not familiar with this, there's only three tires on the Ferrari. It occurs to someone that they need to go get the fourth tire. And instead of sticking the tire on the car, they just seem to have this debate. You know, well, are you supposed to get it? Was I? Is it a wet tire? Are we putting a dry tire on? They were putting on slicks at this point, I believe, Matt. Yeah, they were. Now, the impression I got from both of the Ferrari pit stops, and there have been a lot of conspiracy, th- conspiracy theories about this before, you know, did Ferrari want Irvine to win the title instead of Schumacher? I don't know. The fact that both Ferrari stops were so terrible, I think they very clearly had no idea what tires were going on whether it was wet or dry, because the guy who brings the slick doesn't... Oh, the grooved dry tyre is not certain that he's supposed to be putting on a dry tyre. Um, and I believe Murray Walker described it as you named the podcast there, Matt. Um, a major miss malcommunication, which... <laughs> I mean, you need Murray Walker to cheer you up after that if you're a Ferrari fan. There is literally no better way to describe what happened than that. And genius, genius... Uh, you know, I know, I know we're going to talk about Walker in a bit, but uh, yeah, you could not have picked a better person to re- reflect the sheer insanity of this race than Walker. Right. So what, may, what makes this race amazing is you would think at this point, wow, you've got Frentzen, who's an outside title contender, about to take 10 world championship points. Hakkinen's race is doing terribly. Irvine's lost 40 seconds in a pit stop. The leaders make their pit stop, Matt. Frentzen, all four tyres come on. He gets out of the way. He's going to, you know, have a great chance of winning. And then the camera shows he's slowing down after turn two. So this is now the third major player in the championship. And his car has stopped. Yeah, and and just, and and his teammates had already done that earlier. Uh, we, We sort of elided over that. Although I may have accounted for it in my uh, sprint to the finish, as it were. Uh, but yeah, he just comes out of the pits. He's he's gonna, and then bang, race over. And then that puts of all people, I think it was a cool third wound up being in the lead. And he was your third player, who if he scored ten, and at this point neither Irvine nor um, Hakkinen were in the points. And in fact, not only in the points, but Hakkinen even on his tires was losing. What was it like two or three seconds a lap to the leaders? It, it was mental. He he'd sort of. Well, not so much there, but after his uh, second pit stop, he just basically was, he was just phoning it in um, and and seemed to have not seemed to like, well, you know, I'll drive across the finish line. And at this point, I, I, I feel like it's always like that thing where like you talk your girlfriend or your wife into doing a thing and then it's horrible. <laughs> and and you're, you're like trying to say, but, you know, really, there's no way I could have known that this would have been. And they're just like, mm-hmm, yeah. And they're just frosting you. I feel like his whole race, he was just frosting Ron Dennis because he didn't really want to come in for those tires because nobody else was coming in for those tires. Absolutely. Uh, you may well be right there, actually. Um, one thing I did notice that I found quite difficult to, to prep for this podcast was now when we do a race review, we've had, we have so much information, you know, Twitter, there's stuff on Autosport, Reddit. Now I was dig- digging up articles that were written on the BBC um, almost 20 years ago, so it was quite hard to really get any interviews, but... Um, Anyway, so the context of the race, Frentzen has now broken down. David Coulthard, you know, Mr. I'm going to win the title next year. Coulthard is leading the race. And he's got a good lead from Ralph Schumacher. The track's drying, Matt. But then around lap 30, 
it starts to drop with rain again. Um, and this is fantastic because, it again, it's raining on one part of the circuit, not on the others. Um, this is kind of classic weather that I, I remember from races in the 90s. And David Coulthard, he's leading from Ralph, but he decides he's not going to make a pit stop. And Murray Walker, I feel like Murray Walker jinxes him because he makes a comparison to Senna. Because Senna would famously, if it rained, would stay out on slick tyres. Because as you mentioned, the time it takes to make that stop and then make another pit stop later on, you've lost close to a minute. Um, DC is doing lap times in the 1 minute 37s on dry tyres. Now, in the Sunday practice, because back then there was practice, on wet tyres, the drivers were doing 1 minute 32. So he's five seconds off the pace and he's on the wrong tyres. And he's living on the edge mat. He's got a good lead, but the next time the camera shows him, he's in a gravel trap and he's only just hit Mr. Wall. He's out of the race. And I've got to say, um, the commentary at this point for Murray Walker, I wish I could do an impression of it. I wish Spanners was here to do an impression of it. Yes. It, it, it is hurting his soul that Coulthard's out. Brundle kind of goes, oh no, David Coulthard. You know, they really wanted him. But I wonder, Matt, if we were talking about this as if it was a race today, I think McLaren were too nervous to bring David Coulthard in after what happened to Mick Hakkinen. Yes. I think they thought, well, we, we, we made a mistake that time. We're not going to make the same mistake. But actually, it was too wet. It was. And, and again, though, even though it was incredibly wet in that last sector, it was still not the whole track that was getting soaked. But it was just so wet there that you couldn't hang on. But he was making good time on everybody on those tires. And he almost made it work. And, and he himself, in, in the interview said it just felt like when he went off, it's not that he went off, but he felt like the tires were still driving him and he couldn't get them to stop. Although grass will oftentimes do that. It'll give you the impression of accelerating, uh, give you the impression of accelerating. But what was remarkable to me was that the pit stop strategy that Stewart ran timed out perfectly with the weather. Right. And I think this is kind of the benefit, oh, not benefit. This is the... This is where the discussion around refueling happens. It could be incredibly good for you if you ended up needing to change tires at the exact moment your fuel was about to run out because it saved you the extra pit stop. Um, and as you say, they got the strategy absolutely perfectly. So at this point, I think you've got two of the Stewart drivers in the top eight. Um, Ralph Schumacher is now leading. Um, he then makes his pit stop map got a new set of tyres, and it's Giancarlo Fisichella who leads the race. But at this point, they do not know if he has to stop again because the, the live TV feed did not capture his pit stop. So Fisichella goes off. Well, he had actually been off at one point. Um, he bit off multiple times, but this time it was, yeah. it was uh, I'll use the word fatal, but I won't mean it literally. It was fatal for right. his race. He stalled, he stalled it, and that was the end of that. Right, so this is another leader who's now binned it. And immediately, Murray Walker says, well, Ralph Schumacher has the lead. And there's this camera shot of Ralph Schumacher coming down the street between turn three and turn four. And something looks wrong with the car. Yeah. This is the new leader of the race. And <laughs> what happens, Matt? He's got a puncture. Oh, <laughs> yeah, all that carbon fiber and, and wet track finally caught him out. Yeah, it was the most absurd thing because it just seemed like as soon as the camera went on the leader something was going wrong. So what this means incredibly is that Johnny Herbert, who we've not even spoke about really. Yeah. Is leading the race. Part, but... we've, got, we've got cars out of position. We've got Luca Badoa in a Minardi 
in P4, Schumacher gets to the end of the lap and is able to put on a new set of tyres. But because he gets the puncture in sector one, he does an entire lap map with three wheels. And, you know, at this point, Murray Walker is close to having a heart attack. He, you can tell he has no idea what's going on. Um, he's just saying whatever comes into his head. He's saying words that don't make any sense to describe accidents. You know, like, bang, there goes the tyre. I don't know if it was quite bang, but... Um, and this puts into a really interesting part of the race because, it, again, it started drying. The rain stopped, and the final kind of half of the race, or third of the race, was actually a drying track. Yeah, and and crucially, uh, even though Schumacher had the puncture, he still wound up getting back out in front of Irvine, who was just continually being teased with, oh, you're in the points. Oh, look, you're not in the points after all. And meanwhile, you had Hakkinen, who had been lapped by Fisichella, lapped by several people, uh, suddenly thinking, oh, hey, look, the track is dry. They've put me on slick tires. And oh, look, my world championship rival is about to score a point. Maybe I had best stop sulking and get back to work. So he chases Irvine down. And 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 four or five laps from the end of the race, it is suddenly you have this battle, not just for the world driver's championship between Hawk and, and Irvine, but at the front, you've got this incredible battle going on between Barrichello and I believe it was truly as 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 Barrichello and the second Stewart was desperately trying to get the second podium position for the team. And the poor team right. director. So we've got <laughs> So we've got Stewart Prost Stewart on the podium, is that correct? Truly driving for Prost, I believe. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Which is extraordinary. And Barrichello, in that mindset, I don't know if he's half tempted to make a lunge or if he decides he just wants to get the podium and get to the end. But a casualty, Matt, just before that closing battle between Hakkinen was Luca Vidoa, who was P4. And let's keep in mind, Minardi were not a team that scored points. He was P4. And the engine goes. And it's it's heartbreaking. He gets out the car. He leans on it. And I've seen separate footage at one point on YouTube of... Badoa just stood on the fencing on the other side of the court and he's crying his eyes out because he knows he will probably never get that opportunity again. But thankfully, thankfully, yes. his teammate, his teammate Jeanette, in, yeah. this, in this war of attrition is P5. Um, and he's probably looking over his shoulder because the team are telling him Irvine's catching you and Hakkinen's catching Irvine. And because it's only points for the top six, he's just desperately hoping he can actually get a point. Yeah, and and as it would transpire, Hakkinen would finally force Irvine into that mistake at the chicane, get by him, and also get round Genet to take fifth place. But in recovering from his mistake, Irvine was able to chase down Genet, but was crucially, and this is very different to today's era, crucially not able to get round him before the end of the race came up. So he was denied any points. And that wound up being crucial for the for the for the World Drivers Championship. But I tell you what also happened was that you had Stewart getting ready to be sold to Jaguar, and you had Johnny Herbert getting it across the line in P one, doing a great job on his wet tires as as the track dried, and then and then managing the last stint of his race. And, like, and smart enough not to get involved with Hakkinen. You could see him. He tried to defend, and he's like, wait a minute. 
there's no way I'm as fast as this car. Let's let him go. Let me drive my race. The the mark of a mature and seasoned driver. Let me drive my race and worry about the people I'm actually racing. And it was it was it was fun, fun, fun to watch. Absolutely. And Herbert was very highly rated up until he had a, he had a very big accident at one point in his career. I can't quite remember when it was, but many people believed he he could become a multiple race winner. Didn't fare well against Schumacher, but yeah. He he did very well. Truly, a, a superb defensive display. Yeah, I think you'd agree. Um, Barrichello hunted him down, but ultimately did well. Um, and but as you say, Genet finished P six. He's denied Irvine. That cost Irvine the title, as well as the pit stop early in the race. Um, he would go on to, I think, in Suzuka, which was a title showdown. I think, if I remember correctly, Schumacher and Irvine didn't trade places on the final lap because. Um, Hackenden would have won the race on countback. Irvine needed one more point, Matt. And had he just defended better against Hackenden, he would have had it because Hackenden would have caught Janae. Well, um, but yeah. here's a fact for here's a fact for you. All right, Minardi did not score another point until 2002 in Australia. With, that was with Mark Webber. That's why Bedoa was so emotional about crashing out because yeah. they didn't score a point again for two. Well, and, and I think it had been three years since they had. You know, and to have them both in the points and one of them go boom was just, it, it was tragic. It was tragic. Okay, we've made the end of the race. And we are clearly running out of time. I can tell because Spanners has shown back up on my screen. Um, but before before we move on to our very quick podium, uh, I tell you what, let's just take a moment. Yeah, I'll give you a minute right now for the compare and the contrast section. And this is where having seen this race, Having looked at our Formula One today and having thinking about where you know, and thinking about where it's going to go in the future, just give me your thoughts. What 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 occurred to you when you went back and watched cars from this era compared to what we're watching now, compared to what we're talking about? Okay, um, the cars clearly did not have that much downforce compared to today's car. They looked terrifying through the curves, especially when there was a bit of rain. They really looked absolutely terrifying and under braking. Um, safety was terrible back then. And I think that's one thing we can everyone can agree on is much better now. Um, I'm not I'm not sold about refueling. It I like the fact that it makes the cars lighter and more nimble. But there's a great degree of fortune about when you make your pit stop and tires you're on and make sure you have enough fuel. Um, but one thing I will say I did love Matt is packed grandstands and I love the circuit. It had a lovely flow to it. And this is I think it was very clear to me that this circuit was built to support. You know, the cars from the 80s and 90s, flowing, long flowing corners. It wasn't stop and go. There weren't all these um, slow hairpins. And certainly that aspect I loved. But the other aspect I loved, and I know you love this. Um, we spoke about it on the main podcast a few times. Unreliability. When Murray Walker's looking at the screen and he's yelling out, bang, something's, something's blown up. I'm drawn to the screen. Um, I'm, you know, the, I'd love to know what Spanish thinks about this as an engineer, actually. Because I guess rely, if, if cars are reliable, that, that's obviously a good thing. But from the spectacle point of view, it was quite enjoyable that cars were just going off the track and having failures every now and then. Um, it just added to the spectacle. Right. Well, and, and you're right about that. The cars were unreliable because the rules were different. And the cars were lighter. They were 600 kilograms as opposed to 733. Today, we are lard bellies relative to the cars of that era. But I'll tell you what else sticks to me is that 
as much as I would love to see that, that technology has made that this this racing impossible. You want to see a race like that? Go watch a historic Formula One event because that's the only place you're going to see it. I'm not just talking about the technology and the cars, but the fact of the matter is adding the errs, adding the curves has made this a battle not e- not even of aerodynamics, but a, a, but a software battle. It's a battle of ones and zeros. That's almost impossible for the viewer to get really a good glimpse of. But that same battle is what makes the cars as insanely fast as they are. They're too wide. You can't run them. You can't. You don't see all those cars together. They're too wide. They're too heavy. The kind of racing that we're yearning for when we watch events like this is a kind of racing that is never going to come back because the technology has taken it too far. And so what worries me looking ahead to the regulations is that you're going to look at a race like this and instead of taking the important lessons that it's, it needs to be unpredictable that the small minnows need to have a chance to win. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at any era, it was always the manufacturers. It was almost never the garagistas. This entire political war, this idea of it, any team should win any Sunday, is nothing. It's a windmill that Formula One does not need to be tilting at. Yeah, we need to reduce the spread, but no, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. All right, uh, we are we are right on it in terms of we're going to run out of time. So quickly, what was your thing of the race there, Anil? It's it's Murray Walker's commentary on Coulthard's retirement. It is the single greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And it had me crying like I was howling. It was that good. OK, uh, for me, the thing of the week has to be defending, true defending that has been taken away from us. Um, And again, due to technology and cars, I'm not against the current rules, but you can see how they've utterly eviscerated the art of proper defending, where you would have these battles that would go on for two or three or four laps. And again, that's cooling. Cooling is batteries and errs, and it all plays together. Because you still, I mean, you still had commentary about wings making dirty air. I mean, that hasn't changed, but the cooling and the batteries have really made things more different. Tell me quick, who gets the pony for you, Anil? Was there a pony? Did you have a pony? It's difficult to know this, though, because there wasn't any team radio. So normally I just pick whoever's whining, but th- th- there's none of it. And I don't know if I like... In fact, now you mention it, I, I don't know if I like it or not, but I I, I can't give an answer to this. Because wow. I didn't hear anyone's opinions about anything. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I'll tell you. I, I'll have an answer for the both of us. It was the transition announcers complaining about oh that car was stalled on the grid they should have just left it there for the start and then moved it out of the way before the race got back around like they were in they were completely nuts about every decision that was made and some of which uh, in modern eyes seem perfectly perfectly reasonable and of course i'm going to ask you who missed the apex but i'm pretty sure i know what your answer is going to be oh who 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 do you think i'm about to say i'm going to say ferrari with that pit stop my friend I can't give that to Ferrari. What kind of fan would I be? No, I'm giving it to Takagi because every 20 laps, he should, of course, a safety car. So it's Takagi. (laughs) Yeah, Takagi. You could give it to Arrows. You could give it to a lot. You could give it to Irvine because he quite literally missed the apex. And, you know, but I feel bad because it was a good it was a good effort. He didn't it wasn't it wasn't at uh, for me. Yeah, going to have to go to Ferrari in that pit stop because Oh my word. 
with those extra 40 seconds, how far down the road would Irvine have been? Hakkinen would never have caught him. And the world championship would have turned out different. So there, there you have it. And now, before we go, where can we find you, Mr. Enio? You can find me on Twitter at EnioP228. I talk about all things Formula One, Formula E. There's the occasional Simpsons gift as well. Right. And I'm going to remind you now to go check out Speed of Sight, a motorsport charity providing track days and off-road experiences to the blind and disabled people, um, speedofsight.org. And as we discussed, there is carding. Write to Spanners. Tell him if you are interested. And please do set aside your entire Tuesday as we have not only the one, the only Bob Varsha joining us for a short interview, but subsequently it's going to be the Three Amigos show. Matt, Matt, and Matt. That's right. Summers, Carters, me, and oh, some guy named Spanners might be there too. To talk about all things, I mean, we're talking Formula One Titans right here. This is going to be epically epic on top of like epic sauce. And as for me, you can find me at MattPT55 on the Twitters. Don't forget to follow at MissedApexF1 and our friend at SpannersReady. Remember, wounds cause scars, chicks dig heels, and glory is a fungible concept under certain philosophical precepts. This has been Trumpet's Time. laughing at and that cannot get comment of the week oh my friend yes it can because you know what we forgot to do in classic missed apex tradition was comment of the week see it's not that easy is it to remember dom burn at the bottom sucks to be spanners on tuesday what with him not being called matt yeah i know <laughs> well the thing is right yeah. we are Absolutely going to have to not call you Matt at all. Peter Goodchild, Varsha Carter and Trumpet. Sounds like a cop show. We had uh, someone in the chat room suffering from some lag and European quipped, the lag is Badoer's fault. He was the test driver. <laughs> uh, we have 99 was the last decent season before the Red Ages. And possibly um, too bad David Hobbs is anything but on air. And then Artemy EX in with Feels like this is the only community that I frequent that is, on average, older than me. And this week's winner of Comment of the Week is Neuropean for the lag is bad doer's fault. He was the test driver. <laughs> Comment of the Week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.